calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The Max Quick series is now available as ebooks in the iPhone App Store. Twenty-four. Tea with mother. It was a mere day's journey by carriage from the city to the Westchester address on the slip of paper. Nonetheless, it felt like an eternity to Ian. Every moment they remained in 1912 seemed dangerous for a reason that he couldn't pinpoint. But he had managed to relax the grip of the blood metal ring. The cocoon of metal had released his arm and retracted into just the ring once again. His body was covered with sores and welts where the armor had joined with his flesh. His whole scrawny form throbbed with a dull ache. Mother, Max whispered. His own mother. She was here, very close now. Stop the coach, Max said suddenly. They were traveling on a road that was little more than twin gullies and grassy dirt. It led through the middle of the leafy, deep-shadowed Connecticut forest. A halo of mosquitoes churned in the shafts of sunlight nearby. The coachman obeyed with a questioning look in his eyes. Max paid the man and bid him to return to the city. But the man hotly protested. He would not drop them off alone in the middle of nowhere. He simply couldn't do that. It was unprofessional. No, no, no. He would stay, wait for the return. But in answer, Max gave him a glare that suddenly frightened the man to the depths of his soul. It was the look of an angry lion, of a madman, of someone who could light up with the power of a thousand million suns. Unnerved, the driver obeyed. He turned the carriage around and drove the horses away at a stiff gallop. There, Max said, pointing. Just beyond the dirt road was a long, sweeping stone wall made of stacked boulders and stones piled high into the air. It was twenty feet tall in most places, but as it wound along the craggy, uneven New England ground, it rose and twisted, causing it to vary in height. "'It doesn't look like Mum wants visitors,' Ian said. Max nodded grimly. "'No, I suspect she doesn't, but we're coming anyway.' "'Right. Well, be sure to wipe your feet, then. Don't want to make a bad first impression,' Ian muttered. The wall was simple to scale, it was merely meant as a warning, not a fixed perimeter. It said, Do not come over me. You are not welcome. 
but it was also not an obstacle of any real import. Dropping over onto the far side, Max and Ian walked together now, stepping deeper into the grassy hills of the property on which they were now trespassing. After half an hour of walking, the way started to incline and the grass grew thicker and the trees more sparse. Things suddenly took on a cared-for look, a groomed look, like a manicured estate. A small stream trickled in their path, but they saw presently that there was a single white wooden bridge, a delicate thing providing a way across. Ian nudged Max quietly and pointed into the trees on the right. Half hidden in the brush were what appeared to be two tigers staring at them. I know, Max replied. They've been watching us for the last twenty minutes or so. Ian's ring finger itched, but he fought the impulse of the blood metal down. They were not in immediate danger. Curiously, the tigers were simply panting in the shade, watchful but downright untroubled by the two strangers in their midst. In fact, they almost seemed friendly, like you could walk right up to them and pat them on the head. Then Max and Ian crossed the bridge, and Ian saw a small pack of four wolves approaching. Instantly, he clamped down on his mouth to stop from screaming aloud. Again, his finger twitched wretchedly. Bloody wolves! Oh my god! Memories of the time he had been chased in the book jabbed his brain. But again, these animals seemed unconcerned with them. They were not in the least bit menacing. Their gait was friendly, ambling, like they were coming to play. Perhaps these two people had balls to throw, or sticks, they seemed to be thinking. Even so, Ian almost lost control of the blood metal as a sleek beast came within yards. But the friendly animals immediately dropped to the ground on their front legs, with their hind legs still standing, presenting themselves as wanting to frolic and have fun. Max cautiously reached out and petted the boldest one on the head. The wolf licked his hand with doggy slobber and rolled over onto his back, freely exposing his stomach, which Max then scratched for him. Ian gaped in amazement. A wolf near him nudged his hand with his head, insisting that Ian scratch his ears, which he did. Friendly little buggers, aren't they? Ian said nervously. Max nodded. Yes, they seem to be, he agreed. Kind of worries me, though, Ian said. It's not really like them, and they do speak from experience. What, you'd rather be running from them? Almost, Ian confessed. At least then I'd know what's what. But this, I don't know what to think. Maybe Mom's good with animals, Max replied. But we ought to be on our toes, I certainly agree with that. They played with the wolves for a few more minutes and tossed a stick around a few times, and then Max and Ian continued their walk inland. The wolves, sensing fun time was over, happily departed without the slightest protest, slinking into the brush in the opposite direction. You know, Ian said, watching them depart, I've just had the oddest thought. What's that? Max asked. Well, you know how the note says your mom is also called Miss Starry? Max nodded. Well, doesn't that sound a lot like Mr. E? You know, like Miss Star E. Max blinked. You're right. As Max and Ian came up the crest of the hill, they saw a great mansion of stone perched on a larger hill directly ahead. It was multi-terraced and sort of squarish, like a flattened ziggurat with great hanging gardens. To the left of this was a massive glass greenhouse. It featured a great dome in the center, like a capitol building, with two arched wings on either side. The glass was fogged with moisture, and a waterbird, dense, deep green, clearly thrived along the insides of all the land it claimed. But they saw no person stirring. Nothing human or Niberian seemed present. Max and Ian stood for a long while, scrying into the distance. 
Yet, from where they stood, no one seemed home. Guess we're going to have to ring the doorbell, Ian muttered. Max shifted uneasily. Something's weird here, he said. No kidding, Ian replied. Well, between your star thing that you do and my armor, I'm feeling pretty good about being able to punch our way through just about anything. But even so... Max nodded, smiling grimly. It's mom, and you can bet she's had a bit more practice at this than we have. Yeah, Ian exhaled. I guess that's it. But what if mom's angry with us for disturbing her? Well, Max sighed and raised an eyebrow. Then we're in for one hell of a spanking. Max decided to try the greenhouse first. They entered through the dome section. The door was unlocked, and they quickly found themselves amidst a lush indoor jungle. Row upon row of fauna and flora, neatly arranged and perfectly kept, and groomed, stretched for what seemed like miles. The air was vibrant and fragrant and dripped with humidity. They'd only been inside for a few moments when a sharp wind seemed to rustle through growth nearby. What was that? Ian asked in a tight whisper. Max shushed him and tried to see what it was, but there was nothing in his vision. Then it happened again, a sudden rushing of air in a different section. This time, Max caught a distinct shiver in the green itself. There, he pointed, whispering, and he dropped his voice lower and said, There's something in here with us. Max's spine prickled with the knowledge that a predator was nearby, and they were the prey. It distinctly caught the energy of being watched. Suddenly, Max caught sight of a blur, like someone was whooshing by in the thickets. Something was lobbed out like a grenade as it passed by. A great gout of light smacked into Ian. Ian's reflexes, enhanced by the blood metal, were surprisingly good. He managed to duck out of the direct path of the light glob. Part of it still caught him on the right side. Ian shrieked in surprise as part of his face and his right hand turned pink and pig-like. His nose curled up on the right side into a distinctly swine-like snout, and his right limb shriveled into a cloven-hooved appendage. His shriek even came out as part pig-squeal, and to his dismay, Ian felt his own thoughts grow shockingly duller, more prehensile. He ceased to think in words, and he suddenly pictured a nice puddle of mud and thought of himself lazily sleeping in it, and wondered vaguely what had just been troubling him. Max's eyes popped wide in horror. She turned Ian into some sort of half-pig creature. Stop! Max boomed. We mean you no harm! Oh no? came a woman's voice nearby seeming to be in his very ear, although he could not see her at all. None may trespass here, so it has always been. And those that do are turned into animals to teach them a lesson in manners. Max then felt a light glob smack into him, but he instinctively lit up in response. His skin caught the fire of starlight, and his very flesh and bones churned as a trillion suns and galaxies. He was a shambling light creature now. He easily shrugged off the blast. He heard the woman cry out in surprise. Guess Mom's never seen that trick before, Max thought grimly. Then on impulse, he hollered with an unnaturally loud voice. Please, I am Anlil. I've only come to talk with you. He could feel the woman's amazement, her stunned reaction to his name. The shift in the air was palpable, shocking. She drew back, hesitated. Then she dropped her defenses and allowed herself to be seen. Without transition, she was plainly present before them. She was older, but still beautiful, the way graying movie stars sometimes are. Her hair was gray and long, and her eyes were twin, pale, moon-blue lights set into her head. She stared at Max with astonishment. 
Max wordlessly dropped his own fire of burning starlight and became normal, invisible flesh himself. The two gazed at each other in utter amazement for a full minute, each looking the other up and down. Anlil, she said finally, barely whispering the name. Is it really you? Can it be you after all this time? Max nodded his head. Yes, he managed to whisper. It's me, all right, I promise. He stared at her for another moment and then managed to think again. Please, my friend, he said, gesturing at Ian. Please, don't leave him like that any longer. The woman didn't comprehend for a second and then nodded. She tossed another jangling ball of light at Ian like it was a fairy she kept hidden in her palm. The light immediately spread through Ian's flesh as it crashed into him, making him cough violently with a kind of pig voice. He jittered and convulsed all over like an epileptic for several seconds. Then there was a creaking, groaning sound as his flesh and bone rearranged itself and assumed its former shape. Intelligence flooded back into his eyes, and he flexed his right hand to be really and truly sure it was graced with fingers and an opposable thumb once again. Ian stood and stared at the woman and Max on the balls of his feet in sudden alarm. Hey, Max said, relax. It's cool. I told her who I am. The woman's gaze left Max for a moment and settled on Ian. She frowned. A black-headed one? Max nodded. This is my friend. Mother, meet Ian. Ian, this is my mother. But the woman did something then that astonished Max. She threw her head back and laughed up she threw her head back and laughed uproariously. Is that who you think I am? No, 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 Hanlil. You have it all wrong. I'm not your mother. Now it was Max's turn to look astonished. Not? But the note wait, it said mother. I'm I'm confused. Who whose mother are you then? The woman smiled and pointed to Ian and said softly, His. I'm his mother. Ian stepped back a few paces, suddenly a bit freaked out. What? Begging your pardon, lady, but you're not my mum. I've met my mum, and believe me, you're not her. He looked at Max helplessly, his eyes saying, She's not his mate, senile. But I'm afraid to say so in case she turns me into a bleeding pig again. But the woman seemed clear as a blue sky, sane and sharp as could be. Madness did not dance in those moon eyes of hers. Oh, but I am, young man, she said, smiling coyly. I'm your mother, and your mother's mother, and your mother's mother's mother. Max stepped back in sudden awe, understanding. Ninty, you're Ninty. You were there with Anki in the Abzu. She nodded. Yes, I am Ninty. You helped Anki, Max continued. You, you and he were the ones who... Adapa, you gave birth to Adapa. The story came flooding back to Max now, the one Enki had told him, of how the Nuberian miners had revolted against Enlil and refused to continue working the gold seams out of the earth, of how Enki had then proposed a solution, a mixed creature, a hybrid fusing the DNA of Nuberians with early earth primates. This had resulted in a new species, which was first given form as essentially a test tube baby one that had required a Nuburian birth mother to bring it to term. Ninty. Ninty herself had been that birth mother, and she had also been the co-designer of the species, which had eventually became modern-day humans. Even so, she suddenly grew annoyed. Helped? 
Is that what he told you? Max nodded dumbly. Now that sounds like him, all right, Ninja replied, stewing. It was he who helped me. Oh, it was his idea, all right. But it was I who did all the real work, sequencing the genetics, figuring out the splice points, binding the energies, not to mention actually carrying the child. She snorted a laugh. I suppose if he could have claimed credit for that, he would have as well. You are talking about Anki, right, Mr. E? Of course, she shouted. Who else? Then she leaned in close, conspiratorially, and asked, What else did he say? Did he tell you that we were together? Max looked helplessly to Ian, and then said, Well, sort of. Ha! I knew it, Ninty screamed, vindicated. He's always telling people that. I can't believe he's still spreading that rumor around after all this time. He just wishes... Miss Ninty, Max stopped her. Look, we don't want to get in the middle of anything. We just... Oh, it's not your fault, Ninty said to him, smiling and petting his cheek. Has nothing at all to do with your sweet little self. And what you must have been through, Anne Lil, after all these years of hiding, I can scarcely imagine. But you must tell me everything. Come, come into my house. This way. She turned and led them through a maze of plants. Max turned to Ian and shrugged. Wordlessly, they followed. This tea is made from a new kind of leaf I perfected over the years, Ninty said, pouring each of them a steaming cup. Now be careful, little sips only. It's very strong, but it's very good for you as well. They were in Ninty's parlor. The room was vast, ornate, made completely of stone. Vines crept along the walls, but everything about it was entirely natural, open air, like a Roman villa or the dwelling of a forest nymph. It was not at all like anything else in 1912. 1912 was an age of industry, of machines, of smoke, of commerce, of contraptions. This place, on the other hand, was a throwback to an even earlier time. Even the furniture was made entirely of wood or stone. But the attention to detail was equally astounding. Everything here was handcrafted by the best, it seemed. Miss Nanty, Ian asked, why are you here? I mean, in Connecticut, 1912. I would have thought you would have gone back to Nibiru. She laughed lightly. Nibiru? No, thank you. I spent far too long there as it is. I enjoy the earth. I'm enchanted by it. I always have been. Besides, this is where all my children are. Then, if you're so enchanted with it, and with people, and why do you live out here all alone? Ian asked carefully. And why do you turn people into animals when they... Because they trespass on my property, on my peace! Ninty suddenly raged. I've earned the right to a little privacy. A little... But then she stopped and seemed shocked at the sound of her own voice. So instead, you hide up here with your two best friends, Max said. Ninty looked a question at him. My two best... Yeah, you know. Angry and bitter, Max finished. Ninty looked at him fiercely for a long moment. For a second, Ian thought that Max was about to be turned into a turnip, or worse. But then Ninty burst out laughing at his boldness. Your pardon, she said. It's been so long since I've spoken with anyone aloud. She clearly had her reasons for withdrawing from the world at large, but she simply wasn't going to discuss them. Max sipped his tea carefully with a dejected look on his face. Ninty sat down opposite him and said, What is it, Anvil? Is it the tea? Max shook his head. No, no, the tea's great. It's just that, well, I thought I'd be meeting my mother today. And now, well, it's great to meet you and all, but don't get me wrong, I just thought... Ninty stared at him compassionately. You didn't find what you were looking for. Max nodded silently. 
So you think this trip out here to see me was in vain? At least with respect to discovering your parents. Max nodded again. But here, Ninty smiled coyly again. Once again, Anlil, I think you may find you are mistaken. Max sat upright in anticipation. Well, I am not your mother, of course. But I do know who your father is. I know why your memory was hidden from you. And finally, I know what that secret is that you keep burying and reburying again through the ages. Max and Ian gaped at Ninty. Would you like me to tell you? Her twin moon eyes twinkled with hints of laughter. Ninty sipped her tea gently while Max's heart thundered in anticipation. Anibiru, she began, the twelfth planet, the planet of the gods, the planet of millions of years. There was war. War in heaven. A war to end all wars. Ninty laughed lightly. Well, aren't they always? Now this was the war of the jewels, of the Amphalus. The war between Alalud, Lord of Nibiru, and young Anu, the challenger to the throne. The war that seared our skies, which burned the mystical suspended golden particles of our atmosphere. The war that turned the twinkling life-giving fairy dust of our planet into a grey leaden dirt that dropped from the air in a thick blanket of ash. Well, in a hidden fortress of Anu, a fastness far, far beneath the crust of our world, perched on the shore of a vast underground lake, Anu pondered heavily. The war was going badly. Alalu, his enemy, and then the Lord of Nibiru, had discovered the Chithonic Stone. There's a new kind of Amphalos, possessing a baffling darkness, unknown before in any of the jeweled navels. Its very existence cast a shadow on the hearts of our kind. Our cities are nothing like your cities. Something like New York. <laughs> no, our Nibiru, something like New York would never come to be. New York is all about speed, change, motion, breathless energy. Nuberians love continuity, tradition, sameness. Our cities are made of stone and gold, diamonds and jewels. There's no technology in them. Well, not what you think of as technology anyway. Amphalos, yes. Jewels which bend the dream of the universe in some way. But not machines with clanking pieces of metal and clattering gears. Heavens no. Rather, our cities, even the underground ones such as this fastness of Anus, are glittering things, ornate things. They are romantic, like gypsy hideaways or Romanian castles. Fairy tale creations. Yet they are heavy. They are permanent. They are meant to last through the ages, on geologic time spans. New York will not be in a thousand years, at least not the buildings you see today. They were thrown up in a great big hurry. On Nibiru, there is no great big hurry. Perhaps if human lifespans were like ours, they wouldn't be in such a rush either. Why, the only structures on Earth that have lasted millennia are the ones we built. The Great Pyramid, the Fortress of Baalbek in Lebanon. Need I continue? Ninty's moon-blue eyes flashed with pride. This was not meant as an insult to humans. Rather, it was a testament to the building prowess of her kind. Anyway, Anu sat on his throne in the depths of his city, in a deep depression. Vimanas, what we called sky chambers back then, thundered into the caverns above. His enemy was closing in. All was about to be lost. His counselors and cupbearers advocated surrender. And that was when a strange man appeared... He was dressed in a thick red robe, red like the color of blood when it blooms fresh from a thorn-pricked finger, red like soaked dreams of murder. He wore a hood which cast a deep shadow over his face, such that you couldn't see it, really. His hands were skeletal, thin and white, at least what you could see of them. In fact, remembering it now, 
I'm not sure if he actually had hands. More like he left an impression of having hands, that he knew how to move his arms such that our perception filled in the gaps of where his hands should have been. He might have had penumbral tentacles wiggling out from underneath those red sleeves, as crimson coverings may have simply cloaked a shadow. In any case, the centurions were alarmed by his sudden appearance. No one had seen him enter this heavily protected room. One moment he wasn't there, and the next he simply was. And just as our thoughts were numbly coalescing, he spoke directly to Anu, with no preamble. "'You will lose this gambit of yours, this war you started,' he said with a silky voice. "'But instead I offer to deliver your enemy unto you.' Anu, to his credit, stared for only a moment before mastering himself. And again to his credit, he did not issue some crass, certain-to-be-humiliating knee-jerk order such as grab him, or the Nibirian equivalent. No, our crimson-cloaked friend had already earned his astonishment. His very manner of appearance spoke that he would be not so easily bottled. Anu calmly regarded him for a moment, and gave a hand signal to the centurions to stand down. In a situation that you do not control, it is best not to challenge it, so that you do not appear to have lost control. Rather, appear that things are exactly as you had chosen them to be. And how would you accomplish this? Alalu holds the Chithonic Stone, Anu asked. Ah, the nightmare figure dismissed this concern with a rustling wave of his sleeve. That is a simple matter. It is well within my abilities to keep my promise, despite that weapon. What is more relevant is whether you will render unto me the price I require. And what is this boon you seek? Your son. The words fell. Two nickel-plated planet chunks. Two very young men, both sons of Anu, brothers Enlil and Enki, shrank back against the wall, away from this ghoul. No, the man said, almost with disgust at the suggestion. Not these. I don't want them. It is your son who is yet to be. Will you give him to me? There was an audible gasp. Anu went pale. Now he was undone. He asked quietly, How do you know of this? Anu's wife rose in anger for a moment. Her eyes spun in twin-wet flames, blasting fury at Anu. But she would not challenge him, not openly like this. After a moment's consideration, she sat down again. "'That is no concern of yours,' the cloaked figure replied. "'Do we have a deal, or shall I allow Alalu to continue his descent upon you "'and wreak his just revenge for your betrayal?' He looked grimly around at the battle-weary eyes in the room. There was no choice. He nodded. "'Then it is done. Your foe will be delivered to you this very day,' the figure replied, and with that he vanished as he'd come. And it all transpired exactly as he'd promised. Alalu's Vimana's mysteriously lost power became falling hunks of stone. Alalu himself was pulled from one, battered and near death, not long afterwards. And by that evening, victory was Anu's. It was a stunning reversal. He was now the unquestioned lord of Nibiru, and the long war was suddenly over. Ninti paused and sipped her tea for a long moment, gathering her thoughts. This child... Max asked quietly, his heart full of foreboding. What happened to this child of Anu's? Ninti smiled. The mother was never known to any but Anu. But a child was indeed born sometime later, soon after the war. All knew that. But when the inevitable time came and the cloaked figure reappeared, demanding the agreed-upon payment for his deed, Anu could not bring himself to deliver up his son. He loved him as surely as he loved his others. So instead, he found another newborn from among his servants that had tragically died of natural causes not long after birth, 
and gave this broken infant to the cloaked figure, claiming that this dead child was his son. The cloaked man was enraged, initially suspecting a ruse, and howled and screamed. He stamped about the royal palace, looking under every nook and cranny for the real child. But in the end, after all his seeking and endless questioning, he found nothing. So he departed, because, very cleverly, there was simply no child to find. Ninty smiled again and sipped her tea. You see, the boy had been sent away to another world far away from Nibiru, another wondrous world in our own solar system that had been explored and then forgotten. For when the exiled Alalu signaled back that this world was rich in the very gold Nibiru needed to repair its atmosphere, Anu sent Anki to investigate. And with him, tucked away and hidden in secret, and unknown to everyone else, he sent Anki's own half-brother. He sent his own son, the infant Anlil, to Earth. Max leaned back, blood thundering in his ears. Stunned didn't even begin to describe how he felt. His head reeled. Ian stared at him with a new reverence, as if he were seeing his friend for the very first time. Ninty nodded and smiled. Yes, you are the son of Anu. Anu, the lord of Nibiru, was Max's father. Anu, who was now dead, just as Enlil was dead, and Enki was missing. And that meant... You are the heir of Nibiru, Enlil, Ninty said, finishing the thought playing over his face. But Ian suddenly realized something else. Cripes! That also means Jadith's your bloody aunt! Max shook his head. It was too much to absorb, too much to take in at one sitting. Although it did explain a lot. Why the Centurions with Siren had been afraid of him when he'd tried to bluff his way around the ordeal with a singular eye, for instance. Somehow, they'd known who he was, who his father was. Had Siren known as well? But it didn't explain everything. It didn't explain why that cloaked figure had wanted him as a child. No, there was more to this story. This wasn't his secret. At least not all of it. Go on, Max gritted. I need to hear the rest of it. Very well, Nancy replied knowingly. This is the part of the story, however, that always causes you pain. The part that causes you to recall in agony every time you learn it. The part that makes you demand to forget everything anew and start your life over again. Max inhaled deeply and nodded. I know, but I'm done running and hiding. I'm done hitting the reset button on myself. I need to know the truth once and for all and deal with it. He steeled himself and then spoke the words. I need to know what my secret is. Ninty took another sip of tea and then resumed. That was a perfectly good reason why the mysterious cloaked man wanted to claim you as an infant. But his cloaked man, as you have probably guessed, was an Archon. Archons? What do Archons have to do with me? Max asked, his voice quivering. Despite his protest, he dreaded the answer. Some looming doom thundered in his mind, as if he'd been here asking this very question a thousand times before, and the answer was never good. Ninty narrowed her eyes. Quite a lot, I'm afraid. That did it. Long spikes of ice jabbed through his veins and his stomach filled with a gibbering fear. Archons and Niberians have long history together, Ninty continued, though this is not commonly known. Even Anu himself did not know it else he may have turned aside from bargaining with them. But Archons have long lingered in the dark corridors of our history. They are the puppet masters, ever whispering in our ears from the shadows. They are extremely powerful beings, these Archons. Enki and I studied them at length, 
eventually making of them bitter enemies. But I must confess to this day, we cannot tell you exactly what they are. They might be beings from another dimension, or time travelers, or something else altogether. But we did learn something of their nature, despite their great power. They do have one fatal flaw. They cannot accomplish anything on their own. Instead, they are forced to work through others, ever manipulating and conniving, bargaining and striving to make others do what they cannot do themselves. They cannot affect events except through the hands of another. This method is quite effective, but it has its limitations. The Archons are constrained by the abilities of the beings they are able to manipulate. More than what these beings are able to do, the Archons cannot likely reach beyond. And the goals of the Archons are very ambitious, and these limited beings within their sway are, on a certain level, most unsatisfactory. Ninty set down her tea and leaned closer to Max. So, long ago, many generations of Niberians ago, the Archons set out to address this limitation. They conceived a plan to breed a being who could break the normal bounds of limitation. A person who could bend the dream time in ways that had never been done before. Someone for whom this was an inborn natural talent. Someone with a potent mind, with incredible powers of concentration. No, Max whispered, feeling the world collapse around him. But Ninty continued. He needed to know. Very patiently, they manipulated Nuberians like they ever have. They carefully arranged alliances between houses, marriages between families. Children were born, they waited, and then arranged, and still more pairings. And always, they kept an eye on strengthening this talent they desired. In short, you are bred, Anlil. Your genetics, such as they are, are intended. The bloodlines of your ancestors have been manipulated. And the outcome, the pinnacle, is you, Anlil. That is why you are so powerful. That is why you can do the things you do. It makes you the perfect tool for the Archons to use, to manipulate, to accomplish their ends. And you can be sure that those ends, whatever they may be, are very undesirable. Hammer time, Max thought to himself. This was ten times worse than any nightmare beating from Blister had ever been. So I did the only thing I could do. I hid this power from myself, Max continued the thread finally. I kept my own abilities muted, because of the great danger they represented. Ninty nodded. The plan was simply to never allow those abilities to develop, to keep them switched off, essentially to hide you from yourself. And that way, I would never become the threat they intended, Max breathed. Yes, Ninty replied. You would remain hidden and inert. Max stood and scratched the back of his neck. He felt like a living time bomb. He scratched like he wanted to dig this thing out of himself, this ability, and fling it across the room. But he could not. It was part of who he was, essential to the fabric of his being. But Mr. E must have known about this, Max said. Why didn't he... Ninty nodded, cutting him off. Well, Anki did, yes. The real Anki. But his double, the, the being you call Mr. E, no, he did not. Anki thought it best that Mr. E not know your secret. And you did not ever choose to tell him, possibly trusting in Anki's wisdom. I suppose, Max said dejectedly, that this is the part where I ask you to make me forget again, to hide me somewhere new. Ninty nodded. That is what has always happened before. Once you were made aware of your history, you always asked Mr. E to bind your mind up once again. Max sagged. It seemed like the only answer, again, to keep him from doing something inadvertently that played into their plans. 
But you can't this time, Ian said suddenly. It's different now. Why? Max asked. What do you mean? Because, because the Archons know you're alive this time. Ninty swung in shock on Ian. What? Max turned to Ninty. They, they talked to me before I came back to 1912. They tried to get me to join with them. I told them no. But they knew who you were, Ninty almost shrieked. Max nodded sheepishly. But, but how? Ninty asked, eyes filling with fear. How did they find you? Oh, bloody hell, the pocket, Ian replied. That's how. Ian clunked himself in the head, suddenly realizing something. What? Max demanded. Okay, look, Ian said. You're not going to like this, but here's what I think. For a long time, the Archons bought that fish story Anu told him, you know, about how you supposedly died at birth. But sometime relatively recently, they figured out that Anu pulled the old switcheroo on them, with the babies, and you could bet they weren't happy about it. So what happens next? Suddenly Anu's dead, and then, out of nowhere, Jadith cooks up this harebrained pendant scheme. Philemon's probably the one who put it in her head, and, oh my god... Philemon, of course. Ian's eyes lit up with realization. Listen to me. Philemon is an archon. Max recalled the old man. He wore a crimson robe, much like the figure in Ninty's story. But was he actually an archon? Ian caught the look of doubt in Max's eye and rushed to dispel it. When Philemon saw us in the Pyramid of the Arches, what is the very first thing he said? These are the children you spoke of, he asked Siren. He zeroed in on us, not the pendant. He completely ignored it, remember? The pendant was just something he used to manipulate Jadith with, you know, to get her to make the pocket. But that wasn't what he was really after. Okay, now remember, Philemon knew this child they lost and whose son was hidden on Earth. But little problem, there are six billion people here. Finding you, Max, would be next to impossible, even for an Archon. However, Philemon knew that if he could get Jadith to start up the pocket, you'd stick out like a sore thumb, because you could move, and everyone else couldn't. So you'd turn up sooner or later. All Philemon had to do was wait. Except they didn't find me, Max protested. But they did, Ian corrected, waving his finger. Philemon found you. Remember, Philemon didn't expect to get trapped in the book at the end. That's the only thing that foiled the plan. My guess is after the pocket, the Archons were confused. By all rights, their plan should have worked. But it didn't. So they began doing a post-mortem on everything. You know, trying to figure out what went wrong. They have Nuberians and humans both working for them in our time. Just like they have Pinkertons here in 1912. So the Archons had the Stooge Committee start looking at all the Serp kids. You know, the Archons figured one of them had to be you. But as we know, they came up empty. And so for five years... We all live quietly in peace. But then, a few months ago, one of the Serps lets it slip that a couple of kids wandered into Serp Town in the last few days of the pocket. Kids nobody ever mentioned before. Kids that weren't caught by Jadith. Kids who never got sunbolts. What? The Archons go. We missed a few. So they go back to questioning the Serp kids. Yeah, I remember them. Their names? Casey Cole and Max Quick. Now the Archons have some names. So they come looking for you, and bingo, they find their long-lost Anlil, son of Anu. No, Max shook his head. The Berians have been trying to kill me, and the Archons want me alive. They want to use me for some purpose. They put a lot of effort into... Max choked on the rest, but forced it out. Breeding me. 
It doesn't make any sense for them to go and send new barons to bump me off after all that trouble. Ian cocked an eyebrow. Maybe they just wanted you to think they were trying to kill you. Remember how archons work. They build compartmentalized pyramids. They manipulate. Only the Apex ever knows the real plan. But why would they want me to think they were trying to kill me? Max asked. So that you would try to unlock your mind. Try to defend yourself. They goaded you so that you would become powerful. They bred you to be powerful for a reason. Their reason. Max stewed on this for a long moment. Then he said, No, it's too neat. They had no way of knowing that I would come back to 1912. What if I'd gone somewhere else, to some other time period? Or not even gone at all? I mean, there were all kinds of other possibilities. Archons are not bound by time in the same way we are, Nancy replied. They're not all-knowing, but they can plan in a non-linear fashion. They may have had some way of knowing that this is where you'd come. Okay, maybe, but that doesn't explain the machine, Max whispered. What's the point of that? Ian looked at him with pain in his eyes. They wanted you to destroy it. That was also part of their plan. They wanted you to become powerful, to unlock your secret, specifically so that you would destroy the machine. With a start, Madworth's dying words came back to Max. You are the final piece. Marvin Sparkle had been right all along. By destroying the machine, Max had unwittingly completed its true purpose. Ah, and that's the real reason why the Nubarians didn't attack the house, even when they knew exactly where we were. They wanted to give you time to learn. All the while, they kept the pressure up, sent Nubarians to, quote, try to kill you. You know, the Pinkertons. They probably even helped Marvin Sparkle along, just to keep you on your toes. In short, they made sure that you always felt unsafe, so that you would be desperate to unlock your power. And when they figured you were ready, they released Vadim and Vanya. They knew how you'd react. You'd be angry. You'd attack. You'd destroy the machine. What had he done? What had he done? A sickening dismay rocked Max. He'd felt it when he was ripping the machine to shreds. That tearing feeling. Something ripping open. Something more than just metal and cogs and gems. He should have listened to that feeling. Stopped what he was doing. But he hadn't. Instead, Max had destroyed the machine. Because that had been the right thing to do, Max reminded himself. He couldn't just sit idly by and let them keep tormenting kids. The machine was an immensely powerful device. It had strained him to his limit and beyond. And in destroying it, he'd also destroyed something else. He'd torn something essential, broken down some barrier, opened a door in the dream time that had long been closed. There was some unforeseen consequence to his action. But why? What did the Archons gain? For some reason, his mind's ear heard Johnny Siren hiss, the tyranny of the page. What did it mean? What had he done? Anlil, Ninty said, dragging him out of his thoughts. Anlil, listen to me. What is this machine? You must tell me what has happened. So Ian related the story of their time in 1912, while Max sat in stunned silence. When Ian had finished, Ninty was unnerved to her core. You must return to your own time, Ninty said softly. Now, before it is too late. Too late for what? Ian asked, rattled. He'd had a feeling that staying too long in 1912 was a mistake, but he couldn't really put his finger on why. Why? What do you think has happened? Ninty shook her head. Ian noted that she was worried. No, more than that. 
terrified. Ah, you foolish boys. You must go back. You have no idea what you may have unleashed. Ninty sprang to her feet and led them to a spacious room at the back of her house. It was filled with sculptures and paintings, all from different historical periods. Ian couldn't help but stare at the magnificence of it all. So what? Ian pestered her. Tell us, what might we have unleashed? There's no time, Ian hissed and then pointed. Here! Ian was shocked to see an arch set into the wall. It was the twin of any of the arches inside the Pyramid of the Arches. But Ninty's arch showed the inside of the Pyramid of the Arches. It was a way back. But was it to the right time? This is very close to the time from which you came, Ninty explained. You arrived at the Flatiron Building, yes? Ian nodded. Good. I know that arch, and I know how it relates to this one. This arch will take you back to very near the time you left. Perhaps a day or two later, based on what you've told me. Ian nodded and looked at Max to see what he thought. But Max was distant, clammy-looking. He watched Ninty furtively, feeling her panic course through him. Go! Ninty yelled. Without waiting for Max's approval, or Ninty to yell again, Ian grabbed Max's arm, and together they stepped over the threshold of the arch. What had he done? You've been listening to Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on this patio book, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The print version of both The Pocket and the Pendant, Max Quick Book 1, and The Two Travelers, Max Quick Book 2, are available at lulu.com in paperback format, PDF format, and hardcover. <laughs>